Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The idea that all these disparate organizations who might have some common ground will actually continue to act in a common way after that unique interest is is resolved is, of course, where all this falls apart. A coalition of the Iraqi army, the Kurdish Peshmerga, and Shiite militias has launched an attack on Mosul, Iraq's second largest city. The United States and other nations are providing support on the ground and in the air. There are as few as 4,000 Islamic State militants holding Mosul against them. So what's going to happen to the people of Mosul as they're crushed between these two forces? And what's the plan for governing once the Islamic State is defeated? You're listening to Reuters War College, a discussion of the world in conflict, focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Jason Fields and Matthew Galt. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields with Reuters. And I'm Matthew Galt with War is Boring. Today, we're joined by Peter Van Buren. He is a State Department veteran with more than 24 years of experience. His book about a year he spent in Iraq, We Meant Well, was published in 2011, and it got him into a lot of trouble with Hillary Clinton's State Department. After a legal battle about whether he had the right to publish the book, Peter retired with his full pension. He is now a full-time writer. So, Peter, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to be talking about Mosul and the assault on Mosul today, but can you just give us a little bit of a background about what kind of shape Iraq is in as a whole at this point? I think Iraq is in a very difficult position, both physically, if you will, and especially politically. Physically, and I use that term very broadly to mean that the economy there is very poor, depressed oil prices, as well as uh, some concerns about output um, have made Iraq uh, a very difficult position in order to meet its needs. It still receives a lot of foreign aid, uh, particularly from the United States, and a lot of that money is going just to provide the minimal amount of, of basic services. Many of the cities where the fighting has taken place, and this is certainly something that's relevant to our discussion about Mosul, are in shambles. They look like Stalingrad when you see pictures uh, from the air or even from the ground, places like uh, Fallujah and, and Ramadi. Politically, Iraq is probably even in worse shape than it's been for really uh, a decade. You've got a very divided body politic. The Sunni-Shia uh, rifts have never been mended and in fact have only gotten more complex and, and, and wider 
um, since the arrival of ISIS and since the response of the largely Shia government against the largely Sunni forces of ISIS and then the local uh, Sunnis uh, who may support ISIS. Throw into that mix the omnipresence of Iran now in Iraq, um, and you have a very volatile political situation. Meanwhile, <laughs> on the sidelines, northern Iraq is, is essentially the confederacy of, of Kurdistan at, at this point in time, and it's an independent state in nearly every sense of that word, absent perhaps a, a flag currency and, and, and stamps. So I think they actually do have some of their own currency circulating. And just to keep things interesting, you have the Turks who have a military presence in Iraq and have made uh, some very uh, warlike noises about their plans to expand that presence further, and that also will play into the situation in Mosul. So you've got a volatile situation. You've got a situation there that is as difficult as any Iraq has experienced since the American invasion of 2003, and that, in a way, sets the stage for this uh, so-called Battle of Mosul. Looking at all of that, how's the war against Islamic State going? How are you know they holding? Well, Islamic State, I, I find an, an interesting entity because it's very commonly referred to uh, in our media and certainly by our, our government and our military, you know, as if it was like Germany or Japan in World War II or, or something, as if it was this sort of single thing with you know uniforms and flags that we're uh, we're fighting over territory for. There's certainly an element of that. Um, and I think in our conversation today, we'll refer to it as Islamic State, mostly as, as a convenience. But I think in, in reality, Islamic State is much more loosely organized than uh, we give it credit for. And so in that sense, any war against it is much more complicated than the traditional blue lines and red lines on a map. There's an element of whack-a-mole to it, very much as there uh, is in the fight against al-Qaeda and other elements Islamic State does have the ability to kind of morph into a traditional counterinsurgency um, slash terror organization slash partisan organization um, and then sort of assemble itself organically into a more conventional military force. And again, referring back to Mosul, which version of Islamic State we're going to be uh, fighting there is going to have a lot to do with the outcome uh, of this battle. Do you know anything about the city itself and how important it's been historically? Um, it has a, an extraordinary importance today. Historically speaking, it sits on trade routes and, and has always been uh, a large urban area in that regard. But I think its real importance lies in its geography today, its political geography today. It is contested ground. Um, the, the Kurds have always felt that this is their territory there's always been a, a Sunni presence there, and there has always been a desire by the Shiite government in Baghdad to assert its control. The Turks have been moving around in that area and will be participating one way or the other in the attack on Mosul and have their own designs on territory, not, not necessarily the city itself, but certainly territory surrounding it, and a specific interest in making sure the Kurds do not capture the city and claim it as their own. So we can think of it as a historic crossroads, but I think especially poignant is to think of it as a current crossroads of, of the many political threads that are moving through Iraq. And that will be playing out as an undercurrent, I think, in, in what 
is often being portrayed, as I said, as kind of a blue line, red line battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil here in Mordor. <laughs> and and what does the in, in that metaphor, what does that make the United States? Um, you know, I could get really complex here about orcs and stuff like that, but I think we want to keep it at a fairly high level. The United States is, in this case, sort of at the, at the most positive, um, the organizer of this collection of organizations that all have an interest in seeing ISIL out of this area. At the same time, the United States is also providing some of the heavy muscle that's going to be necessary uh, to do this, uh, particularly airstrikes, artillery, and probably a lot more troops on the ground than, than we're all willing to recognize or, or even are aware of. So that, that's the very practical sense. That's what we'll see on the news and what we'll see on the ground. The problem is that this is the same level of wishful bungling that has characterized far too much of America's actions in Iraq in the specific over the last decade or so, and the Middle East in general. The idea that all these disparate organizations who might have some common ground or some common interest will actually continue to act in a common way after that unique interest is, is resolved is, of course, where all this falls apart, where it's fallen apart in, in Iraq several times. Um, just looking back quickly, historically, this is part of the problem with the so-called uh, surge and Anbar awakening, the idea that the Sunnis and the United States' interest in scaring al-Qaeda out of Anbar province would somehow translate into a broader political engagement by the Sunnis with the American-sponsored government in Baghdad, well, that didn't really happen. There are, it, it's a complicated thing, but I mean, speaking broadly. The idea, too, that the Kurds are willing to continue to engage Islamic State on behalf of America when their own goals are satisfied, once again, that's just fallacious logic, and America's bumbling attempts to make it something otherwise, maybe not even attempts, I'll call it wishful thinking at this point, uh, maybe delving into fantasy, um, fantasy brings us, I guess, back to the uh, Lord of the Rings analogies just to kind of tie that up. But, I mean, the idea would be that the United States may not really know what its actual role here is and is clearly looking for short-term gains and, once again, willfully ignoring long-term consequences. Well, so let's take an example, something that happened recently, and I'm interested to get your view on it. You mentioned Fallujah, which was an Islamic State stronghold for a little while and relatively close to Baghdad, and that's one of the reasons why it was so important to the United States and I'm guessing the government in Baghdad to actually root them out. Also, of course, some Americans had died in Fallujah previously capturing it. So there, there's just a lot going on there, emotional baggage too. So with Fallujah, there were both Shiite militias and also Isra Iraqi regular forces. So how did it go in the aftermath? You know, not well, though I have to stress that there's been very little intense or responsible Western reporting on this. Fallujah was a, always has been a predominantly Sunni city and has always been sort of a gateway into Western Anbar and, and the, the, the kind of Sunni heartland, if you will. So strategically, it's always been very uh, important. Baghdad at the time of the, the Fallujah uh, 
battle, what if you will, um, was really being plagued by car bombs. And most of those were believed to be originating out of Fallujah by Sunni forces of some type. I, I want to be careful with the words because I, I don't want to fall into the same trap I've, I've accused others of doing, of talking of, about Islamic State as a, a single broad entity. But we'll say Islamic State, for convenience, was, was sending car bombs into the heart of Baghdad out of Fallujah, and shutting it down was just absolutely uh, an important strategic uh, thing. And it was done. Um, it's not hard to do that when you've got the full power of the United States military, laser-guided bombs and artillery and the best of our best special forces. I mean, this is overwhelming against a group uh, of people who are ad hoc armed um, with stuff they've begged, borrowed, or stolen uh, off the battlefield and who are led by uh, people of, of limited professional capacity. You know, it's not a, it's not a fair fight. What happened is we saved Fallujah by destroying it. And the humanitarian crisis that was triggered there uh, is to a lesser extent in Ramadi because it was more mixed and what we suspect is going to happen in Mosul has never been really addressed. In addition, the incursions that the Iranians made, and of course most people believe the Iranians were participants in the uh, siege of Fallujah as well, though the United States was very careful to, to pretty much not talk about that and uh, allegedly not coordinate with the Iranian forces, um, has opened up this basic idea that the Shia forces have that doorway to An Sunni Anbar now open to them. We also know that the so-called Shia militias, many of which were probably uh, at least uh, commanded or quote-unquote advised by Iranians, exacted a terrible toll on the Sunni population. Um, all you had to do was kind of point at a guy and say, oh, he was an ISIS collaborator, and boom, a uh, bullet in the back of the head. That, by the way, does have its own historical parallels in the Anbar Awakening, the surge, when the Anbar sheikhs figured out that whenever they needed a rival knocked off, whatever uh, his uh, religious or affiliation was, all they had to do was tell the Americans, oh, he's al-Qaeda, um, and that guy would, uh, would not wake up the next morning. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. So actually, Reuters actually had some very interesting reporting a couple of weeks ago talking about how Sunni casualties were underreported. Uh, and so, I mean, at least there's some follow-up there. You said the best U.S. special forces. I mean, is there actual evidence that, are you saying U.S. soldiers were in the fight, uh, actually at the you know, front lines firing weapons? Yeah, well, we've, we've, the United States government has long acknowledged that there are special forces uh, in Iraq uh, conducting training and advising, and they've walked that line forward um, on a number of occasions. Obviously, uh, you know, I was busy that week and was not in Fallujah for the assault uh, itself, <laughs> but, 
<laughs> much as I really did want it to be there. The idea of this training and advising, I mean, if indeed what the United States has been doing is simply training and advising, then the Iraqi forces have to be the best trained people in the world. Um, they've been being trained and advised uh, for, for years now, never mind the training and advising that took place during the occupation uh, itself. We do know that Americans have been killed uh, in this training and advising capacity. We do know that the special forces have been empowered publicly to, quote unquote, conduct raids, to defend themselves, things like that. Um, in northern Iraq, in Mosul, um, we've got artillery on the ground, which is clearly outside of um, anything consisting of advising or, or training. And we're now up to, I think, close to 6,000 troops in Iraq, plus a lot of contractors, plus a lot of Marines who are not considered, quote-unquote, in Iraq because they're temporarily there, flown in uh, off their uh, ships uh, at sea. You've got an awful lot of people there, and they are in combatant roles. We'll play the same Orwellian word games that the government likes to play. a point I'd like to just go back to, because I do uh, enjoy the, these ironies of, of history, uh, preparing for this uh, discussion today, I uh, Googled the term rebuilding Fallujah, and Google, bless them, came up with uh, some articles from 2016 talking about how Fallujah was going to be rebuilt after uh, the most uh, recent assault. But then you scroll down the page, and here's one from oh, 2008, a little further down the page, here's another one from 2004, U.S. military works towards rebuilding Fallujah. Um, and we can kind of walk this thing page by page uh, through history to suggest that you know, Fallujah was not simply destroyed again on, on, in uh, this summer when the assault took place, but it's kind of been redestroyed any number of times uh, and never quite rebuilt. These are not long-term, this does not bode well in, in the long-term. I mean, if, if your policy is, is something along the lines of slash and burn, I, I guess it's quite effective. But even I'm not cynical enough to think that's quite what the United States uh, is intending to do here. The point is, however, that if you don't do something for the long-term, figure out a form of government that allows the Sunnis to be inclusive enough that they abandon any any defensive military type stance, you're going to be rebuilding uh, Fallujah and you're going to be fighting there indefinitely. And the same for the other cities. And and certainly I think we'll see that in Mosul, which is even worse because you've got all these other third party players. All right. Well, on that note, do we have any idea how bad the fighting is going to get in Mosul? Look, you know, you you said you were just looking at all that stuff about Fallujah. Did that give you any kind of sense? Um. I think the real answers in Mosul depend, again, on which version of Islamic State we're going to face there. The UN has issued warnings saying that they're, they're up, up to a million people are going to be displaced in the battle to retake Mosul. Supposedly, the low end is, is 200,000 uh, displaced people who are going to be trying to find a way out of the city. Um, once you start talking about those numbers, you have a humanitarian crisis independent of any active attempts to kill them. Just providing food, water, shelter, medical care for that many people is, is a task that is beyond even 
large nation states. And I don't think the United States has any plans to engage at that level as in, quote unquote, humanitarian work. And, and I don't think the U.N. has the resources either. So independent of those who, who may get killed in the actual fighting or caught up in an artillery barrage, you've got a humanitarian crisis that's going to take an extraordinary number of lives. Once you start talking now on the, on the so-called kinetic side of things, the, the death toll is so open-ended that it's hard to predict. Once you, you, you know, if we look at what's happened, for example, uh, when the Israelis have waged urban, indiscriminate urban warfare, this whole business about, well, we're going to do surgical strikes, we're going to do targeted artillery and all that, that's all well and good. But when you're firing heavy artillery from a distance into urban areas that are populated, um, when you're dropping bombs, however precise you believe them to be in urban areas, you know, you just don't have second by second intelligence. You just can't say who's on the third floor of, of a building that you believe uh, Islamic State has uh, occupied the fifth floor of and, and things like that. You're also going to be destroying inadvertently or, or purposely the lifelines of, of whatever water, sewer, electricity uh, there. We have also seen a, a terrible trend um, from all sides involved throughout the Middle East recently of specifically targeting hospitals, uh, aid stations, doctors, and medical facilities. And so you add all that up, and it's extremely difficult to see this as anything but a, a humanitarian disaster. The potential saving factor, uh, to some extent, will be whether or not um, ISIS takes a, a, a stand in, in Mosul. Um, parentheses, I don't think they will, close parentheses. Um, the quicker ISIS gets out of Mosul, the less of all that has to happen, um, and the quicker some form of, of semblance of, of, of life can be restored. And more importantly, this, the, the, the actual killing can actually come to a, a halt fairly quickly. I suspect ISIL, ISIS, ISIL, I've used every possible term for them so far. I apologize for not being consistent. You know, I suspect they're going to cut and run. Um, they're, they're just facing such overwhelming firepower. I can't imagine any but a, a core group of people are going to fight a rear guard action to let the others escape. That said, it's interesting. Some of the uh, uh, press that I've been reading, the, the uh, kind of edgy press out of the Middle East that I've, I've read in, in translation, has suggested that, in fact, this is part of the master plan of the United States is to chase ISIL out of Mosul um, and let them go back into Syria, blend back into Syria, because the U.S. wants to manipulate them to take out Assad in Syria. Um, and so you can get kind of tangled up in what all this means. Bottom line, I hope that Mosul is not the humanitarian crisis that it has the great potential to be. It's a really strange circumstance in that if Islamic State tried to hold it, estimates I've seen of the number of fighters there, the highest estimate I've seen is 8,000. Reuters' number is between 4,000 and 4,500. It seems like that would actually offer two problems. One, as you said, they would be overwhelmed, but two, picking out 4,000 people out of 1.4 million is also pretty tough. That's absolutely right, and particularly if those... 4,000 have no interest in living through the battle and are more than willing to uh, fight rear guard actions, wait for troops, uh, uh, Iraqi or whatever troops to pass through, 
um, if they're willing to use civilians in, in a martial way, either as shields or as dupes or as uh, lures to kind of trick the Iraqi or the Americans into killing more civilians, um, those small number, relatively small numbers of troops can do an awful lot of damage um, if they have no interest in living through it and if they have no interest in, in actually holding territory but simply causing as much harm and destruction as they possibly can. That version of, of, of ISIL will sort of fall, I guess, in the middle of this humanitarian crisis uh, versus people who want to dig in and drag this out as long as possible versus the ISIL that wants to, to run away and uh, fight someplace else another time. It's, it's very hard to come up with a scenario that, that borders on good news here. An article that you wrote for Reuters talked about how the Iraqi military, the actual regular army, is structured and essentially how much it cost to buy the generalship of a battalion or other forces, um, an enormous level of corruption. That corruption is part of what has been blamed for Mosul's fall in, I think it was June or July of 2014, and it just fell within a few short days. Do you think that any of that's been corrected? I mean, is Iraq's military a little bit stronger or a little less corrupt? I think what's happened in large part is that it's been sort of supplemented. You know, I see the, the term Iraqi special forces used all the time in these uh, urban assault situations. And what that seems to be is a sort of separate, independent Iraqi military, organized Iraqi military that the United States has put together post-occupation since the United States ha has returned to Iraq in, in, in 2014. Calling them special forces kind of separates them uh, from the, the Iraqi National Army, which is floundering someplace between incompetent, completely missing, and, and, and destroyed by, by corruption. So by saying we're going to have a much smaller Iraqi military force that's under American command and control for the most part, um, you call it special forces because it sounds better and uh, it gives a better impression. But essentially, you push aside the part that doesn't work and, and build a new little part on top of it. In addition, we no longer are expecting in any way the Iraqi National Army to fight as, as the signif most significant force on the ground. We are instead putting together what euphemistically is called a coalition, basically plucking the best out of the Iraqi National Army, recruiting the Kurds who have proved to be you know, good fighters, uh, particularly when they're, they're fighting uh, for their own territory, what they call their own territory. Um, and then you have the Shia militias, which vary from very professional uh, Iranian-trained uh, and uh, probably uh, directed uh, forces to, to shock troops, basically cannon fodder, um, guys with AKs who, who go in and spray and play uh, in hopes of, of hitting something or at least kind of drawing things out. So you've kind of assembled the equivalent of an army there, and I think the United States hopes to kind of hold it together and kind of push these pieces in the right directions so that one element is the sort of basic infantry, one element is the maneuver force, one element is the uh, highly professionalized force that can take on the, the tough jobs, 
And whenever is needed, you've got the Americans directly to kind of pop in, fill in gaps. Um, you know, we've got combat teams on the ground now, um, infantry, parach parachute division. You know, these are not trainers and advisors. The Marines that are coming in off the ships um, are primarily doing artillery uh, support now. But again, these are people who, who fight wars, um, and they're there to fill gaps uh, as needed. So the Iraqi army is pretty much, uh, you know, it, it probably still there. It's probably still as corrupt as it used to be, but it also probably doesn't really matter. So to just sort of wrap up, once the battle for Mosul is over, and I take it that you, like everybody else, are banking on a successful military campaign. Defined as ISIS leaving Mosul, yes. Right. Uh, exactly. Do you think that Iraq will come away stronger or about the same? Weaker in a different way. Um, clearly having ISIL holding its second largest city and, and holding territory has not made Iraq a stronger place uh, by any definition. But once you know ISIL is gone, you now have a vacuum. And vacuums don't last very long, particularly when an awful lot of people actually want to control this area. There's a very good question out there of what the Kurds are going to do. The Kurds have always wanted to expand their territory west. Erbil and Mosul have been in, you know, those are places they want to control. They want to push their, their own uh, zones of control all the way to the Turk and, Turkish and Syrian borders. Whether they can be restrained by the United States um, is a good question. The Turks are uh, lurking because they certainly don't want the Kurds to do that. Whether they will move into that vacuum in, in a substantial way is unclear. What the remaining Sunnis happens to them, what the Shias do in terms of militias, uh, whether the Iranians want a piece of it, probably not. It's kind of far away. Um, but that vacuum will be filled by something, and it's very difficult to see a scenario that that – Filling that vacuum makes the Iraqi national state uh, a stronger and mo more coherent place. Um, I'm not sure what scenario actually makes the Iraqi state a, a stronger and mo more coherent place, um, but this is certainly not going to be a big contribution to that. All right. Well, Peter, let's just uh, give you a minute. You've got a new book coming out that actually, once again, is related to the situation in uh, Iraq and, and the soldiers coming home from it. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. I've uh, been able to maintain contact with a, uh, a limited number of the soldiers that I was with in, in Iraq. And then I've come to know uh, a number of others uh, since uh, talking about it, making speeches and, and, and the book and everything. And I've been struck by the effect of war on, on these folks. And I've also been struck by the subtlety of these effects on them and, and sort of the way that a lot of the media has, in fact, hit this with a big, ugly, heavy hammer. Oh, it's PTSD. And that's become sort of a code word for anything from a drinking problem to barricading yourself into a, into a building and hoping the police uh, you know, commit suicide for you. In fact, the effects of war on these men and women are, are varied, they're subtle. Many times they're carried very much internally and, and very much kept in check by the soldier, which doesn't mean the damage isn't being done. In addition, the effect of war on civilians has rarely been looked at carefully. And so I have uh, taken all of these 
uh, stories that I've heard, uh, the literature that I've read, and I've put them into uh, an unusual fictional setting, which is the end of World War II uh, in Japan. And the book is going to be called Hooper's War. By pulling this out of contemporary history and putting it into history that's basically old enough that very few of the readers have any personal experiences there, um, I'm hoping to open it to a broader audience. I've also, uh, quite interestingly, spent some time in Japan interviewing people who were, were children at the time during World War II, now quite elderly, about their experiences exp uh, as civilians uh, at the, the fighting end of war. Combining all these elements, I'm hoping to give people a much clearer picture of what happens when you send people into these situations. It's called Hooper's War. It's coming out in May. Uh, hopefully, uh, people will take a look at it and, and let me know if, uh, if I accomplished my goals. Peter, thank you very much for joining us, and it's a pleasure to speak with you again. Thank you so much for being here. As always, thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, rate us on iTunes. There's no better way to help new people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at war underscore college. And this week, we were very gratified to hear from Oliver Heglin, who told us via Twitter that a professor at the Graduate Institute of Geneva actually referenced one of our episodes in class. We're honored. We're thrilled. War College was created by me, Jason Fields, and Craig Heddick. Matthew Galt co-hosts the show and breathes life into it. Bethel Hopte is our producer, and if we don't sound good, she doesn't sound good. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.